doesn't love a good courtroom drama. The history of popular media from Perry Mason down to Law & Order shows that people love sinking their teeth into a high-stakes battle of wits to claim ownership of the truth. And I get it. Back in my journalism days, I covered a few court proceedings myself, including following the course of a murder trial that spanned over a year. The posturing, the legal moves, the slow burn as lawyers ramp up to play their trump card, it's fascinating. And we've covered our fair share of courtroom drama here on the podcast. The exoneration of the men who committed the Camp Grant massacre. The defense of the men involved in the WAM payroll robbery. And all the spectacle that surrounded the trial of John Rhodes and Ed Tewksbury in the death of Tom Graham. But, for my money, if you want a court case that has everything you can usually only get from a finely scripted television show... Drama, suspense, wit, guile, and legal chicanery, there is one case that delivers it all in spades. And that's in June 1895, when James Addison Rivas matched his wits, illicit skills, and formidable charisma against a prepared and bullish U.S. attorney over the fate of the massive Peralta Grant. I'm your host, David Rickhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 141, The Baron of Arizona, Part 7, Wholly Fictitious and Fraudulent. Welcome back, everyone. I hope all my American listeners had a pleasant Memorial Day and all my international listeners just had a pleasant weekend. But we are back now and it's time to finally reach Act 3 of the saga of James Addison Rivas. As any movie buff will tell you, Act 3 is the culmination of everything that came before it, and it's also the point where things can get really wild and crazy. And that's going to be true for our story too, as after years of maneuvering, Now was the time when Rivas actually had to appear in court and defend his ludicrous claim to 12 million acres of the Southwest. You'll recall from last week that Rivas had spent the two years between filing his claim and his court date fabricating evidence and bribing men to commit perjury, as well as losing nearly all his supporters and financial backing in the process. Meanwhile, the U.S. government headed by the able lawyers Matthew Reynolds and Several Mallet Prevost, had spent that same time re-examining everything about Rivas' story and were able to basically pick apart and discover his massive web of forgeries and lies. Finally, though, the discovery portion was over with and the actual courtroom drama had to get started. The case was called before the five-judge Court of Private Land Claims in Santa Fe, New Mexico on June 3, 1895, 12 years and a couple of months after Rivas first submitted his bundle of documents to the U.S. Surveyor General for the Territory of Arizona. The court was called to order at 10 o'clock in the morning, with the gallery being packed full of journalists and others eager just to catch a glimpse of the would-be baron. However, when the clerk called for the plaintiff, no one stepped forward. So the clerk called again. And again. 
The panel of judges asked if the plaintiff was represented by any counsel present, but again, no one stepped forward. The clerk then called for the defense, and Reynolds, Malt Prevost, and another lawyer representing the government, they were there. Wanting to give Revis the full benefit of due process, the court adjourned until the afternoon, hoping that by then the defendant would actually show up for his own case. But when the court reconvened at 2 p.m., there was still no sign of Revis or an attorney representing him. Of course, we know that by this point he doesn't have anyone left to defend him, but the court wasn't aware of all of Revis's financial troubles and his inability to attain new counsel. It had received a telegram from Revis in the months leading up to the case's start date, asking that the case be postponed until November for this or that reason, ill health, lack of counsel, and basically every excuse a college student has given to get out of taking a test. This was rejected because it had already been two years since the claim was filed, and it was time to actually get down to brass tacks. With no other options really left, the court decided that since the government was ready with its case, they would just go on, and so Reynolds was told to get up and make opening statements. These were what you would expect. Revis is a fraud. The Peralta Grant is a fiction. There never was a first or second baron of Arizona, and the government was going to prove it. What's really funny, though, is that right after this opening statement, a lawyer named J.T. Kinney from San Diego stood up. Kinney actually represented 106 other people who claimed to be relations of Miguel Peralta, the man who had sold his claim to Dr. Willing back in 1867 and whom Rivas had built into the mythical second baron of Arizona and Carmelita's grandfather. These had actually come together and hired Kinney in order to get a piece of the barony of Arizona, and their claim had been consolidated into this case. The truly funny part here, though, is that these were all reliant on Rivas to prove the validity of his claim. But then Kinney was able to look through all the evidence that Reynolds and his team had, so when the San Diego lawyer stood up, it was to say that they were all dropping their claim because even a cursory glance at the government's evidence made it all too apparent that there never was a barony of Arizona for his clients to get a piece of. To keep washing his hands of this whole business, Kinney would also say that he only met Revis once for a few minutes several years ago, and he knew that Revis had denigrated his clients as a bunch of blackmailers. So yeah, he was no longer a part of this case, thank goodness. And my sources are always quick to say that these 106 relatives of Miguel Peralta were never heard from again. Okay, with that bit out of the way, the trial could begin in earnest. On June 4th, Reynolds began calling his witnesses and presenting his evidence. Mallet Prevost, who traveled so widely and collected so much, was put on the stand where he laid out most of what I already told you in last week's episode. He pointed out the flaws in the Spanish contained in Rivas' documents, some so egregious that no actual native speaker could have possibly made them. And here I'm talking about wrong verb conjunction and improper word choice, up to and including words that don't actually exist in the Spanish language. Then Reynolds called up a graphology expert, who got on the stand and went through Revis's originally filed claim, document by document, 
showing that the type was not the same kind in use in Mexico in the 18th century. He also showed how one of the documents had a seal that was genuine, but that had not been originally affixed to this particular piece of paper. Rather, it had been purloined from an actual genuine document, and then just added to this forgery by some sort of adhesive. As predicted, he gave his conclusion that these were all patent forgeries that had been slipped among real documents in an effort to make the claim seem legitimate. The next day, Mallet Previs and the graphology expert would take the stand again to continue their testimony, but this time going over the documents in Rivas's 1887 claim. Mallet Previs was able to talk about his investigation in Spain, and how in any of the documents submitted, an expert could plainly tell that parts had been erased and the name Miguel Peralta had been expertly written over the blank space. And then the graphology expert was called back to the stand to testify how the type of paper used for the documents in this filing didn't match those among which they had been found. He again labeled them blatant frauds and that the various wax seals and other symbols on them had been faked too. By this point, the trial had been going on for two days with just some pretty dense expert testimony. Everything presented had been damning to Rivas's claim so far, and the defense still had a pile of papers it could go through. And it looked for a moment that the trial of the century was going to go down as a dud, a boring affair with only men talking about the type of wax used in Spanish documents. That's when there was a sudden commotion at the back of the courtroom. A telegram had arrived that was causing a stir, which either went first to Reynolds or to the head judge of the court. And this telegram announced that Rivas was on his way, and he asked that the case be continued until the following Monday to allow him to arrive in Santa Fe. Reynolds, supremely confident in the groundwork he had just laid, said he had no objections to waiting for Rivas to arrive before continuing to cook his goose. After all, if the would-be baron didn't show up, they could very easily pick back up where they had left off. And with that, the judge gaveled out the session until 10 a.m. on Monday, June 10th, 1895, to wait for the plaintiff. Rivas would actually arrive in Santa Fe the very next day, and he instantly started begging for more time. The local newspapers were quick to point out that the would-be baron was without legal counsel, and this was the argument that Rivas would use when he filed a motion for continuance. When the court actually met in session on June 10th, Everyone craned to get a view of Rivas. The man himself arrived in a nice black coat, gray beard neatly trimmed, and he strolled into the courtroom with almost a calm ease, with no hint that this was a man who the government had just branded as a liar and fraud. He greeted the judges warmly before addressing the court in a polished, confident voice. Immediately he started in on the motions, all of them calculated to play for more time. First, he asked that his case be separated from the 106 clients represented by Kinney, despite the fact that they had all technically backed out. When this motion was denied, Rivas made a motion to appeal that decision to the Supreme Court, which was also denied. So he switched tactics and brought up his motion to continue the trial to another date. As anyone could see, he was sadly without counsel who had all backed out at the last minute. He, after all, had plenty of documents and other evidence to rebuff every single point made by the government, but he had only read about them in the papers and refused to believe that they were the whole account. 
The court was equally unsympathetic to this motion and pointed out to him that the case had been on the docket for more than two years and the court date had been set more than three months earlier in February. That should have been plenty of time to employ a lawyer of some kind. Now 0 for 2, Revis tried yet another tact, this time moving that the case be dismissed altogether. This is a crazy notion, seeing as he had brought the case to the court in the first place. We don't have a good explanation about why he made this last motion, as he never really stated his reasoning. My own interpretation, which you can feel free to take with a massive grain of salt, is that he might have thought he could still keep peddling his scheme. If the court should rule against him, that could be the entire ballgame. But if the case never went forward, he could keep selling his grant to suckers and make a variety of excuses for why he had been forced to bow out of the courtroom. You know, I could instantly tell that all the judges were prejudiced against me and there was no hope for justice in that court. That kind of thing. This, too, was a motion that the court would not grant, with the chief judge sternly telling Revis that this matter was too important, given the large tract of land involved, to be simply dropped. Revis had voluntarily chosen to duke it out in court, and they were not going to let him weasel out from that. The only concession the court did make was to adjourn until the following day to allow him some preparation time. Still smiling despite the plethora of rejected motions, Revis thanked the court for its time and left, just as cool and dignified as when he had entered. The real drama began the next day, when Reynolds called Revis himself to the stand, something that would go on for days. Yet, as prepared as he was, Reynolds may not have been entirely ready for what a slippery character Revis was. Once on the witness stand, Revis wove together a long, eloquent, though rambling narrative about his life, his association with Dr. Willing, and the discovery of the grant. This was full of a lot of dissembling and random information that was meant to obfuscate and confuse the point. Reynolds, at several points, had to switch topics just because Revis's Grandpa Simpson-esque ramblings were starting to put the judges to sleep. And here we get into Revis trying to rewrite the narrative by making some pretty bald-faced lies. When Reynolds asked him about borrowing the books from the mission at San Javier del Bac, which I mentioned in episode 136, he denied he ever did such a thing. When questioned about the willing documents, Revis spun a story about suddenly becoming suspicious of their authenticity and that Miguel Peralta had fled to Mexico when Revis went to find him. Here, he also throws Willing and the crooked Spanish land lawyer William Gitt, from episode 135, under the bus, saying that they, especially Gitt, were shady and questionable. Revis would also give the impression that he and the former U.S. Surveyor General for Arizona, Joseph Robbins, had agreed for him to accompany Rufus Hopkins into Mexico to investigate the claim. This is something we covered in episode 137, and when the current U.S. Surveyor General, Royal A. Johnson, was called to the stand, he testified that not only had Robbins not agreed to that, but was very disturbed after learning that Revis had gone with Hopkins. Though Revis was dancing around pretty nicely, Reynolds did manage to get a few blows in that the would-be Baron instantly tried to cover up with more lies. To show that his documents from Spain were on the level, 
Rivas told everyone that he had been constantly watched and attended to by the archivists in Madrid and in Seville. This was just the opening Reynolds needed to bring up the sworn testimony of those archivists about Rivas's attempt to smuggle in documents and the whole matter of the police getting involved. Confronted by this, and probably his first time hearing it, Rivas did what came naturally to him. He lied as much as he could. All these sworn statements were false, he claimed, because the archivist had tried to blackmail him, charging him excessive fees and keeping important documents from him. He had tried to get certified copies of the documents through his high government contacts, but for various reasons, including the formation of this very court, he couldn't. Reynolds was able to trap Rivas in his own lies because, by his own admission during this court proceeding, Rivas had filed his claim for the Peralta Grant in 1883, though he said he had doubts of its authenticity and was still years away from finding the heiress. Though he ducked, weaved, and obfuscated the best he could, Rivas was eventually forced to admit that that was now his story. When it came to the matter of the doctored record books for the San Salvador mission near San Bernardino, Rivas would claim that he had gone to the church once, but just as a tourist. He then paid a local barber to get the books for him and then to return them. He never went again. Now, that last part is true, as we did mention that he had the barber return the books after Rivas had borrowed and altered them. When asked why he wouldn't have gone himself to get these books, Rivas decided to say that he knew that the mission's priest was a villainous character and didn't want to tip his hand. And I just have to say, if your strategy is to now cast blame on the mission priest and brand him a liar, then, well we've officially reached the grasping at straws stage of your defense. Also, remember, that priest was in the room at the time Rivas said this, so that tells you a little something about Rivas too. And later, when the younger priest, who had actually lent the books to Rivas, was called to testify, he laid out the story as it actually happened. During cross-examination, Rivas walked up to this man of the cloth and said, quote, I have never seen you before in my life. I've never been to your church and never received any books from you. Why are you lying? End quote. This young priest turned out not to be so easily intimidated and could not be shaken from his story, no matter how much Rivas pressed and said, didn't it actually happen this other way? At one point, Rivas just straight up shouted at the priest that everything he was saying was lies. And when Reynolds then called up the handwriting expert and Mallet Previs again to talk about the forgeries in the book, Rivas made a scene. He stood up and told the judges that he simply couldn't stand to listen to all these lies anymore. He would offer his objections and cross-examine the witnesses later. And with that, Rivas stormed out of the courtroom for the day. He would actually do the same thing again when Reynolds was going over more documentation that had already been introduced as evidence. After Rivas recovered from his hissy fits, he would be back to spar with some of his nemeses who were called on as witnesses for the defense. One of these was Royal A. Johnson, and Rivas spent most of his time sniping at his old enemy, trying to make him look like a fool. Johnson was equally antagonistic and told the whole court how Rivas had badgered him constantly just to approve the grant. At one point, Rivas mentioned a lawyer by the name of Cox and that he was now dead, which was a blatant lie that was an attempt to trip up Johnson and damage his credibility. 
But just then, an older gentleman in the gallery stood up and told the court that Cox was alive and well, as he had seen the lawyer just the previous month. It turned out this elderly gentleman was none other than James Monahan, the one-time livery owner that Dr. Willing had tried to sell a portion of his claim to in order to pay off his debt. You may also recall that Revis had talked with Monahan during his first trip to Arizona and had the livery owner show him around the Salt River Valley. Now, in the meantime, Monahan had done pretty well for himself, getting rich off his various business dealings, and just the year beforehand had been elected mayor of Phoenix. When the government put Monahan on the stand, he testified to his small part in this little drama, and when cross-examined by Revis, he was able to jab back at the old fraud a little bit. Revis accused Monahan of threatening violence against him for pursuing his claim, but Monahan merely replied that he had been warning Revis of a bad end. Eventually, Revis ended the cross-examination because Monahan was really kind of getting the better of him. But my favorite part of this whole charade of a trial is when Revis decided that he wanted to cross-examine Mallet Prevost about his claim that the Peralta family didn't exist. First off, Revis directly asked this Mexican-born Spanish expert, You don't speak Spanish, do you? Mallet Prevost had also mentioned that Don Miguel de Peralta, the first baron, could not be found on a list of the Knights of the Order of the Golden Fleece, like Revis claimed. At this, Revis jumps up, claiming that that was untrue, and grabbing a list of the Knights in the Order, points to one of them and says, He's right there. Mallet Prevost looks at the name pointed to and says, Well, that doesn't say Peralta, it says the Duke of Santa Saban. To which Revis replied, well, yeah, that is Don Miguel's, um, other title. I mean, you can't tell us who the Duke of Santa Saban is, right? So you can't say that it's not Don Miguel de Peralta. And this is another moment when Rivas is really just throwing everything against the wall and hoping that something sticks. Mal Previs took all of this in stride and basically retorted, No, but if they were the same person, you would have put Duke on all your documents. Mighty frustrated now, Rivas asked, quote, Would you believe that there was such a man as Don Miguel Nemesio Silva de Peralta and Duke of Santa Saban if you saw his name on a tombstone with the date of his birth and death? Would you, Mr. Mallet Previs? End quote. To which the expert gave the best comment of the entire trial, quote, Not if you had been at the tombstone first, Mr. Rivas. End quote. At this point, the trial had been going on for two weeks, but the main event that everyone wanted to see was the witness scheduled to take the stand the following Monday. Carmelita, the Baroness herself. A lot of Reynolds' case rested on questioning her legitimacy, and he had done his best to show that she was actually the illegitimate daughter of John A. Treadway and an Amerindian woman, without a drop of Spanish blood in her veins. So, putting her on the stand and getting her to admit this fraud would be a huge coup for the defense. By now, it seems that Carmelita and Rivas were something akin to separated, with her and the twins living in Denver. So, she arrived in Santa Fe on June 14, 1895, with her scheduled appearance the following Monday. Carmelita entered the courtroom accompanied by her two children, who instantly captivated the audience. According to one source, the two children ran about the courtroom playing and even sat with one of the judges while their mother was testifying. 
with her children innocently playing nearby. Carmelita was grilled by Reynolds on the stand. And as I said before, she was never good with the details of her invented backstory, and that started to happen here too. For example, she mentioned going by the name Treadwell earlier in life, and when Reynolds said, don't you mean Treadway? She responded, no, no, it was Treadwell. Later, when she mentioned Treadway herself, and Reynolds reminded her that she had said that the name was Treadwell, her composure cracked. She backpedaled for a bit and then blamed the mix-up on her lack of formal education. Reynolds was also able to get Carmelita to confirm that she had looked at, but never really read, all the documents that her husband was submitting on her behalf for her claim, something she again blamed on her lack of education. Overall, though, she stuck by the story that Revis has spun for her with remarkable conviction, despite our knowledge now that it was all a sham. Reynolds did make something of a mistake during his examination, which momentarily lost him the favor of the audience in the gallery. My sources put it at different points, but either during the whole Treadwell, Treadway debacle, or later when the government lawyer hammered her with questions about her actual parentage, Carmelita broke down crying. This caused one of her two young cherubic sons to cry out for her, and Revis to stand up and object to the government's line of questioning as it was clearly upsetting his delicate wife. Reynolds was forced to back down, saying that the witness could be excused for now. However, Carmelita composed herself and said she would get through it today because she had no intention of coming back. Reynolds' final question was another stinger. Did she not know that she was impersonating a woman who doesn't exist from a family that also didn't exist? With a deadpan answer that stemmed from either wit or naivete, she responded that she didn't realize that she was impersonating anyone other than herself. The defense then ended his questioning with Reynolds adding the backhanded compliment, quote, In spite of your frequent and material deviations from the truth, you are a remarkable woman and you fully sustain the wisdom of Mr. Revis in selecting you to pose as his baroness. End quote. After this, the real drama of the trial was kind of over. In the coming days, Revis would submit all the old portraits that he had gathered in Seville and Madrid, declaring them to be the barons and their family, and even elicited a chuckle when he asked the judges to consider how much one of his sons looked like one of the portraits. Reynolds felt the government had made its case of plenty, going so far as to waive his right to give closing arguments. Revis, of course, did the opposite, submitting a 52-point objection to the various witnesses the government had called and giving a long speech reiterating every aspect of his claim. Then, after more than two weeks, the trial ended, with the judges saying a decision would be ready before another week was out. And on Friday, June 28, 1895, the court announced its decision. There's no drama here because you probably all saw this coming, but the court declared that, quote, the claim is wholly fictitious and fraudulent, end quote. It was its ruling that there never was a Don Miguel Nemesio Silva de Peralta, and therefore there was no great-granddaughter who was his heiress. Furthermore, any documents establishing Don Miguel or his heiress had been forged and manufactured and then snuck into the various archives where they had been, quote-unquote, discovered. And so it was, quote, ordered 
adjudged and decreed that the claim to the property, which is commonly known and called the Peralta Grant, situated in the territories of Arizona and New Mexico, is hereby rejected. End quote. The only thing the court would not do was rule as to Carmelita's parentage, saying that that had not been definitively proven, only that whom she claimed to be grandparents and great-grandparents never existed. This, then, was the final nail in the coffin of Rivas's schemes. It was all over, the house of cards knocked down. But you wouldn't know that from the way he carried on. Rivas took the ruling with good grace and promised that he would file an appeal with the Supreme Court. He then told all the assembled journalists that he didn't really care about the grant. With it gone, he and all his supporters could finally concentrate on the development companies that he had started without these silly land questions. Except he didn't have any supporters left. After leaving the courthouse, he was stopped by U.S. Marshals, who put him under arrest for filing a false claim against the United States government. He was granted the opportunity to be released on bail, but despite cabling everyone and anyone, no one posted the money to get him out. It would be a whole year later that he would appear in court, where much of the same evidence was presented. This time, however, Reynolds was able to flip a couple of the men that had committed perjury in 1893, claiming that they had known the second baron. Miguel Noé had managed to slip down into Mexico, but those who did testify in the second trial were enough. Rivas was found to be guilty, and on July 17, 1896, the judge sentenced him to two years in a federal penitentiary and to pay a $5,000 fine. It seems like a relatively light sentence for all his crimes, but the jury had recommended leniency. Despite again vowing to appeal to the Supreme Court, Rivas did serve out his entire sentence. And the rest of his life is something of a sad tale. After getting out in April 1898, he declared that he was still set on developing his various Casa Grande companies, but from now on, people would just look at him with pity, and they definitely would not open their pocketbooks to him. Most of those companies soon wound up in bankruptcy. Revis drifted, spending some time in Denver, where his wife had a small apartment and was doing her best to sustain herself and her two children. But then he went to Washington and Arizona, never staying in any one place too long and never finding much success in anything. He would try to trade in on his notoriety, publishing a periodical called Peralta Rivas Real Life Illustrated in 1900 that promised the full story of his land scheme in a future issue, except there was only one issue printed. Later on, he would print his confessions, which ran in a San Francisco newspaper. It read in part, quote, the plan to secure the Peralta Grant and defraud the government out of land valued at $100 million was not conceived in a day. It was the result of a series of crimes extending over nearly a score of years. End quote. And later on in the piece, he said, quote, Gradually, I became absolutely confident of my success. As I neared the verge of triumph, I was exultant and sure. Until the very moment of my downfall, I gave no thought to failure. But my sins found me out, and as in the twinkle of an eye, I saw the millions which had seemed already in my grasp fade away, and heard the courts doom me to a prison cell. End quote. However, I should note that even here, 
his confessions were not the full truth. He admitted to some of the things uncovered by Reynolds, but never told much more than that. He certainly never admitted to the origins of Carmelita, or what exactly was the impetus of the entire plot. The schemer would take those secrets with him to his grave. And after this, Rivas mostly dropped out of sight, living on the verge of poverty and showing up in the records of a charitable institution in California before returning to Colorado. He would die in Denver on November 14, 1914, from bronchitis, before being buried in a pauper's grave. He was 71 years old. Carmelita, the Baroness, would outlive him by almost 20 years. Jean Rivas had divorced in 1902 after Carmelita had asked for it on the grounds of non-support, making this the second wife that Rivas had abandoned. Carmelita died on April 4, 1934, also at the age of 71, but neither her obituary nor her tombstone noted anything about something called the Peralta Grant. Any fading, yellow, brittle pieces of paper found in her home were the last vestiges of the once formidable land scheme. And now, with the would-be barren, dead, and gone, we can finally turn our attention to other matters. So join me next week as we dive into an even more legendary figure as it finally is now time to discuss one Jacob Waltz and the massive gold mine that this Deutschman supposedly left in the Superstition Mountains east of Phoenix. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Goodbye.